0: As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock-solid systems, all in Notion, to support the business as we grew, and it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I've felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%.
1: And I read everything you could on entrepreneurship and building and growing an audience. And I'm like, I know all the things I need to actually put it into action now and just give myself two to three years and say, okay, I'm just going to dedicate myself for this period of time, no matter what.
0: Welcome to Creative Elements a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. It's great to have you back here today on Creative Elements. This is a fantastic episode and an incredible guest that I cannot wait to share with you. But first, I have to tell you a story. Last summer, the summer of 2019, I produced a full-length documentary. Now, a year later, that sounds like such a bizarre thing that I can't believe I'm saying, and it feels like it was a lifetime ago, but I did it. That documentary really came out of my other podcast called Upside, which studies startup communities across the country. It's called Test City USA, and it's a film about the startup community here in Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio, Test City USA. For the
1: past two decades, American business has tested more of its products in Columbus than in any other major American community. For through the years, industry has
0: discovered that what happens in Columbus today will be happening all over America tomorrow. Through a bunch of lucky breaks, we were able to work with an Ohio State University student-athlete over the summer named Kyle Skinner, who wanted to be a filmmaker. So we put him to work directing a film for us over the summer. And long story short, we filmed, edited, and even aired this documentary in September 2019 at a film festival here in Columbus, Ohio. It's 94 minutes long, it won an award, and it was one of the most difficult, fun, and fulfilling creative projects I've ever made. And that's after more than a year of podcasting and several years of writing. Now you may be thinking, all right, Jay, what's the point of all of this? Well, today I'm talking with Matt Diavella. Matt directed, filmed, and edited a full-length documentary once himself. And if you haven't seen it, I'll bet you've heard of it.
1: I teamed up with a couple bloggers that I had met named Josh and Ryan, who ran a website called The Minimalists. And we decided to just hit the road and just get started, interview as many people as we could that were experiencing the benefits of this thing called minimalism. And so that was really, when I think back to it, the first original piece of content that I created.
0: Not bad for the first original piece of content that he created. That film was called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. And it was acquired by Netflix in 2016. And I'll be honest, it was a lot more successful than Test City USA was.
1: It went trending on Netflix, number one on iTunes. You know, obviously Netflix doesn't give the numbers away, but uh, apparently it looked like millions of people were watching this film and we just heard from people all over the world it blew all of our expectations away. Like to, That's to put it lightly, because it was a one-person crew. It was largely myself shooting and editing, I would say, 99% of this thing. I got some friends to help, and I was lucky to have some really great friend color grade it and do the sound mix on it. But other than that, it was my responsibility to bring this thing to life. And so, you know, I think a lot of people have this expectation when they see something, maybe that looks polished and that looks like that reaches a platform like Netflix, like, oh, there was 300 people working on this thing. And it was this whole elaborate production and like, no, it was just me in my bedroom, you know, clocking away at my keys and putting in 12 hours a day, eating nothing but peanut butter sandwiches and drinking coffee every day.
0: That documentary helped to put both The Minimalists, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus on the map, and it kicked off Matt's career as an independent creator as well. Matt Diavella has a minimalist website and a minimalist personal bio on that website. He calls himself a filmmaker, YouTuber, and podcaster that explores what it means to live a good life. He started making videos for YouTube after completing the documentary, and his YouTube channel now has nearly 3 million subscribers with videos that have been viewed more than 175 million times. You may remember an audio clip from one of his videos in episode 9 with Jason Zook. In this episode, we talk about his experience creating the Minimalism documentary, managing his creative energy, crafting a good story, and how experimentation has helped him find success on YouTube. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can put them in our Creative Elements listeners group on Facebook, where I'll also be sharing some of my favorite videos from Matt's channel throughout the week. And of course, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus, I'd love to hear from you. But now,
1: let's hear from Matt. I think when I look back, it was a little bit of a sloppy road (laughs) to get into creating my own original content. I know that it was something I always wanted to do. I was always the person trying to start the blog and then wouldn't make a post for three months and then come back and say, oh my God, I'm so sorry that I haven't like posted in a while, even though my mom was the only one that actually read my blogs at the time. I was always a fan. I always like enjoyed reading blogs. I wasn't as much into YouTube videos, but just like the original content creation game. I was just always a fan of it ever since like 2010, even a little bit earlier. But to really make a living, to pay off $100,000 in student loan debt, I really poured myself into my freelance filmmaking career. And that's really where I invested all my time, energy, and resources in the beginning. It's kind of hard not to when you, you have to make ends meet. I think I was also lucky in the fact that I really loved Filmmaking. I love the craft of it. I love freelancing. And so I worked on some really not so glamorous jobs and projects like every freelancer uh, has to. So the weddings, bar mitzvahs, local television commercials. And that's where I, I got my chops and I got a lot better. And then eventually I got to this point where... I was ready to take a risk and I had at the time paid off a majority of my debt, I think maybe like 60, 70% of it. And so I was feeling more confident, like I was ready to take a risk. I'm definitely risk averse and I'm definitely very conservative when it comes to taking those risks. And so I like to make sure that I'm really ready for it. But once I do make that leap, I just go all in. And so for me, that meant making my first feature length documentary it was probably a two-year, three-year process of making that film. It was very, very long. And so I was still doing freelance during that time. There was a little bit of back and forth between doing the freelance work and then pausing for a week to work on this film. And then we released it and it blew all of our expectations away. And so that was amazing. And also on top of that, I was able to actually, we were made a, made a profit. I made the $10,000 back that I put into the film, as well as, uh, some runway for me to take a step back and think about what do I want to do with my life? Now that I've you know put out my first original film, I don't need to, I probably have you know expenses for a year, maybe two, so I don't have to actually work my freelance projects. And that was when I started thinking about, okay, what do I want to do next? Where do I want to invest my time? And do I want to go all in with original content creation?
0: That opens up so many doors and I want to go down. I actually <laughs> rewatched the documentary last night. Uh, oh, wow. With my girlfriend, Thanks, Mallory. Man. And I was trying to put myself back in the shoes of 2014 through 2016 when you guys are filming this because you're interviewing guys like Sam Harris, who I imagine would be very difficult to get a hold of now. I didn't realize this is your first original piece of content. So, you know, I was telling you before we started recording, I respect you as someone that has high intentionality for how he spends his time. For you to say, I am still in debt, but I want to embark on a year plus of creating this documentary with these guys. How did you decide that that was the opportunity that you wanted to take a risk on and really invest that kind of time into with the obligations and constraints that you already had in front of you?
1: Yeah, well, this is going to sound really corny, but three months before we made this film, I've made a bucket list. (laughs) And at the top of the bucket list, I said, make a documentary about something I care about. And minimalism was something that had impacted and changed my life back in 2010 when I graduated college. Like I said, I had about $100,000 in student debt. I was living in my parents' basement. My filmmaking career wasn't going really well. And I still felt like I needed to prove to everyone else and to myself that I was successful. I needed to have all these symbols of success, like the house, the cars, the tech gadgets, and all that. And it was finding minimalism that helped me to question all those assumptions. And it helped me to really think about the direction that I wanted to head. And so I think that was really the precipice for wanting to make a film about it because it impacted and changed my life. And then, you know, it was crazy. Like three months after I made that bucket list, I got an email from Josh who ran the minimalists and he was like, Hey, we're about to go on tour, you know, it's for our new book and we really want to, you know, do a tour documentary. And then I was like, Oh, that's, you know, that's interesting. Like I I don't want to do a tour documentary. Like I love you guys. Uh, Like, you know, they eventually became great friends, but a tour documentary to me is not very uh, compelling. Like I, I was thinking a little bit bigger and I was like, what if we just, we, you know, dive into the movement, And like being a fan of all those blogs, you know, Sam Harris was obviously a a great catch and it was like, it it wasn't something that was easy to get. And I still, even at the time, like he's big now. He was big back then. And like, at the time I was like, oh, I don't like getting Sam Harris would be really difficult. But Josh is like really, really good. He spent, you know, years and years in the corporate world. <laughs> and so he's like very good at email language and pulling people in and winning people over. And so he did a great job of, of landing a lot of the interviews for the film. But, um, you know, for me, I think You know, obviously, love Sam Harris, but some of the people I was most excited about were people like Leo Babauta. Again, he ran a website called ZenHabits.net. It was a blog that was really inspiring and influential to me. There was Joshua Becker, Courtney Carver, all these other people who uh, had lived this minimalist lifestyle, and so yeah, that was definitely one of the most exciting things to me. But yeah, we certainly didn't know where it was going to go from the moment we started.
0: Were you prepping the questions and conducting the interviews as you're shooting them?
1: I think it was a bit of back and forth. So Josh. Milburn was he he was one of our co-producers and he was one of the, you know, the main guys in the film. He conducted most of the interviews when we were together. It was a process of three years. And so we did a lot of those interviews on the road when we went on tour with them for their book tour. This ended up being the through line of the film. It was like the story of Josh and Ryan and how they went from suit and tie corporate guys to minimalists. And now they're just talking about and spreading this message and like watching this movement and the message grow. Josh did a lot of the interviews while we were there, although we both kind of collaborated on questions that we would ask. And then, you know, when it comes to an interview where it's going to be cut down, you kind of are thinking in your head, what are the elements that you want to get? What are the responses you're going to get? Much similar to a podcast. Although if it's A long form of conversation, that's very different than saying, okay, well, we want to actually be able to pull something out of this and you're not going to hear my voice. And so there's certain questions you need to ask and framing and reframing and asking the same question twice in a different way because maybe that first response didn't really give you exactly what you needed to edit into the film. And so you have to think about all those things. That's why it's great to have somebody else asking the questions like Josh or a producer or whoever. That way I can sit back, especially since it was me filming everything. you know, A lot of times if you have a bigger shoot, you have a DP and all these other people helping out. But since I was filming everything, I wanted to be able to sit back, digest it, watch it from a third person perspective uh, versus being in that one-on-one conversation. Sometimes that's at least for me, I know my skills are better in contemplating thinking, sitting back and then responding once I've taken the time to think about it, as opposed to being off the cuff, responding and having this dynamic conversation with this person and leading it where you want it to go. And so a lot of times after Josh would finish you know a 45-minute interview, I might interject in the middle every once in a while if I'm like, if I see somewhere where it could go, uh, but at, usually at the end, I would kind of take over that conversation and add a few more questions.:
0: So after this reached the success that it did and you're credited with being the director you're on the first you know page of Netflix when you look at the documentary and can you have this runway you're talking about and you're saying what do I want to do next how did you think through that and not just go down the line of another documentary or another feature film you know what was that process like
1: that's a great question i understood then what it meant to have self-reliance today uh like in the digital age and i knew that a large, large part of the success of the film. Obviously, amazing filmmaking, right? <laughs> but then on top of that was, it was the fact that Josh and Ryan had this audience. And I, you know, you couldn't look past the fact that they had an audience that were excited and willing to pay to view their content. And I knew that there were other films I wanted to make outside of minimalism. And I didn't want to be reliant on anybody else's audience to be able to make a living and to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. And so that's where I started to think okay, I know that I need to build an audience. It seemed like the most impossible thing to do in the world. Like, truly, I was like, you know, it just seemed so unrealistic. But every time I had done that in the past, every time I had pushed against my doubt and I had tried something that I thought was impossible, like, getting out of debt, starting a freelance film career, making a documentary, it worked out because I put myself into it fully. And I said, all right, I'm just going to do that with this project of building and starting an audience. And also, like I had just gotten so much great advice personally and also through reading blogs and books and I read everything you could on entrepreneurship and building and growing an audience. And I'm like, I know all the things I need to actually put it into action now and just give myself two to three years and say, okay, I'm just going to dedicate myself for this period of time, no matter what, through the face of failure, doubt, and all the other like negative things that happen during those early periods of time and just push through and kind of just look towards that finish line as opposed to looking at those short-term failures.
0: When we come back, Matt talks about how he began building his own audience on YouTube right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient. It fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash creator. Welcome back to my conversation with Matt Diavella. After the massive success of minimalism, Matt took the opportunity to step back and think about what he wanted to do next. And in looking at the success of the film, he realized that a lot of credit went to the fact that the minimalists had already been building their own audience. So Matt decided that he was going to start building his own audience, and he started by putting his filmmaking skills to use on YouTube.
1: There was certainly a lot of experimentation in the beginning, and I tried You know, vlog format, just simple talking head. I tried riffing to the camera, which turned out (laughs) wasn't the best approach for me. I definitely found that I was much better when I planned and scripted and and wrote out my videos and really thought about the story I wanted to tell, the humor that I wanted to add into it. Uh, I I definitely think that there's two style of creators today. There's the freestylers and those that write, kind of like hip hop, where somebody can freestyle something amazing off the top of their head. Uh, that's not me. <laughs> if I got up on stage, I'd piss my <laughs> pants. So I'm the guy that's like reading from a poem <laughs> on stage. And so you kind of like have this ego, I think in the beginning too, that like you watch a Gary Vee video and you're like, oh, I can do that. And then you just try to like, you turn on the camera, start riffing and you're like, I'm an idiot. <laughs> and so that was, you know, I learned through that experience and I adapted my approach. And I think after maybe 10 videos or so messing around on YouTube, obviously not seeing any kind of results, I kind of leaned into podcasting. That's when I started the Ground Up show. Again, it was like telling stories in the beginning, realizing that wasn't working, then going into the interview format and and starting by chatting with friends. And I had a plan of growing the YouTube channel, of being like, okay, obviously the way to grow this thing is to get big guests on the show. So then they share it with their audience. I knew leaning into high quality video, which at the time really wasn't done that much. I mean, at the time, people that were doing video podcast. It was Joe Rogan and his video was just awful. And, you know, obviously amazing podcast, (laughs) but like the the production quality, the video just wasn't good. And I think Lewis Howes was doing it, but he had like those headsets (laughs) and it was like, it just, it just seemed like distracting. I'm like, why are you doing that?
0: It's so interesting how when people started doing video podcasts, they, they regressed on what they thought good video was. They're like, well, because it's a podcast, we need to make it clear visually that it's a podcast.
1: Exactly. Such a strange thing. And like, I think when you're doing a podcast and it's in that format, you have some creative liberties. Like, obviously, you can put a microphone like the ones we're using now in front of your face and it looks fine. Because people are like, oh, it's a podcast and you get it. But still, like, I wouldn't do something that didn't look good. I wouldn't do something that looked like I was, you know, an insurance salesperson. To Louis Howe's credit, he switched and now he does wireless microphones. But I think at the time, yeah, like a lot of people didn't really think about it that way. And so I saw an opportunity. I was like, oh, I can lean into this high quality, lean into the visuals, one that just creates some validation. People see that and they, oh, like this is this must be high quality. He's invested time and energy into this production, so I'll invest some time and energy into listening to the episode. And then on top of that was if I created these little excerpts, these takeaways that were. Cut and carved from that main episode. Like, this is so obvious now, and so many people do it, but it's like it was taking these short videos, 30 seconds, a minute long. And then, after I did the episode with somebody who maybe had a much larger following than me, maybe 10,000 followers on Instagram, I could then share like five different clips with them, making them look as brilliant as possible like never pressuring them saying hey you know if you want to share this would absolutely love it if not that's totally cool you being on the show was good enough it was you know obviously worth the time and i and i obviously appreciate you doing that and so that was like my growth strategy and it was like interview friends to begin with create a teaser for this thing so then i can sell it to other experts and people who have a bigger following than me and then hopefully eventually a few of those people will share it and then i'll be able to grow and that's exactly what happened i mean rich roll Ultra endurance athlete, podcaster. He has a you know huge following, and he was just you know gracious enough to come on my podcast at I think around thirty episodes in, and he uh, you know I think in part, and this is the same thing when I do whenever I you know come on a podcast like this or anybody else's podcast. Uh, it's not about the audience size as much as it is about respecting the person and the platform and what they've created. And like you, obviously, put a ton of time into building a beautiful website and setting this whole thing up. And so, I think uh, that's really what I look at is like has the time been invested? And I think that's what Rich Roll saw. So I you know shared some clips with him. He shared it on his Instagram. That was the biggest spike. I went from like a thousand downloads a month to eight thousand downloads a month. And it's that's that snowball, that momentum that can start building. And I did see it from the beginning, but it certainly took a lot of experimentation and playing around to to find my place
0: as Matt was experimenting with the video podcast format on YouTube, he was managing a lot of creative output. For any given video, there's the scripting, the shooting, the editing creating a title, making a thumbnail, not to mention putting the podcast up on audio players, writing a newsletter, running his own social media channels. It's just a lot. So I asked Matt how he was able to manage his time and creative energy while maintaining such a high level of creative output.
1: I'm very good at batching. And so, I mean, it it took a little while to learn this lesson, but I, I think when I hit my rhythm, it was kind of paying attention to where my energy goes and where my energy gets drained the most. And conducting interviews certainly drains my energy like nothing else. You know, because you have to plan this interview and then there's pressure and stress on you to get the interview right. You know this, (laughs) like, (laughs) dude, it's like, I don't think a lot of people realize what actually goes into it but like especially when you care about something there's obviously people who don't care about the work and then they're just like ah it's a conversation whatever and I don't think that those people unless they're an amazing freestyler or like unless they're like they have maybe a celebrity advantage or whatever I think that like you really have to put in the work if you want to to get really good at something and you have to actually prepare. And like the actual interview itself and like obviously you battle with like self-consciousness and like overthinking yourself. And you know, when when somebody else is answering a question, you're like this is getting very meta, but like then like you're thinking about like what are what like what should I say totally. next? And like it really drains me. So I would try to batch like two to four interviews over a couple of days and then i would go through and final cut and edit like the entire episodes like back to back like four episodes in a row because there is especially with a podcast an element of like structure like you create the intro you record the intro so I, I could record four intros at once four outros at once you know i had copy and pasting effects and and all this stuff over from one to the other like dude i really uh, like i'm starting to work on courses and stuff and i think i really want to get into more creative style courses and teaching filmmaking because I think the huge advantage I had, I'll, I'll tell you the two most important skills that I've personally learned that I've put into is like video editing and writing. And so, like with the video editing, it was really just putting 10, 15 years into like editing and Final Cut and putting in the time. And I like learned shortcuts. I learned how to edit quickly. And like, I, I could get to a point where. I could just by looking at the waveforms and like splitting the edit in a certain way, I could edit a one hour podcast in about 15 minutes. Yeah. And yeah, and like, but that's also like, you know what I mean? It's like using shortcuts and like seeing the waveforms. I see that I'm talking, he's talking, I'm talking, she's talking. And then uh, this part, we're both talking at the same time. So I'll go to the wide angle shot and I can just fly through a full edit in 15 minutes. Obviously, then. I would want to do another pass. You know what I mean? Like being the perfectionist I am <laughs> and making myself sound smart and getting rid of like some ums and ahs and false starts where you start asking a question and then you eventually rephrase the question down the road and I would just clean those things up. But I think it was putting all that time into editing that I had gotten uh, skilled enough where I I could do it much quicker than I would have 10 years earlier. And so I think that is kind of just batching and then you know, investing my time into my skills was really how I was able to to produce as much content as I was, especially during those early days.
0: Matt's podcast, The Ground Up Show, was beginning to build a strong following on YouTube and on the audio platforms too. And even though it was growing with an assist from guests like Rich Roll, Matt was still experimenting with other ways to grow on the platform.
1: In the beginning, I experimented a lot. And then I was like, all right, it's gonna be the podcast, that's what I'm doing. And then I just poured everything into that. And this is what I think is great about YouTube in general, is that it's so easy to look back at creators and see how they got successful. Like if you wanna be a great YouTuber now and you wanna build a sustainable YouTube channel, go back and look at some of your favorite YouTubers, look how they started, see the first video that took off for them, You know, see how that video was crafted, the title, the thumbnail, all those things. Like, We can look back at all these people. And I love doing that for people like Joe Rogan, Dead air bad, Brogan. Where's Goldie? <laughs> yeah,
0: we just started this. It's not very good. I oh, actually, apologize. It's that person, probably. No, it's not. See, it's this guy right here. More red. See? Good yeah. sound quality. Yeah, the video and s- oh. See? Different guy. This guy's tweeted- his twi- tweet's not coming through.
1: Oh, that might be- yeah, uh, that might be something weird. F- but I, was oh, ta- right. I was talking
0: about the- where they said the f- the f- sound and video. There's Snowflakes falling are a bit annoying. Oh, come on. It's Christmas. Video and sound are okay, but the snowflakes are annoying. Does everybody feel like the snowflakes are annoying? it just one dude that's kind of, you know, anal about what he looks at on a screen. Come on, man. It's a beautiful
1: snowflakes. Like that gives you so much inspiration. You know, he started out just live streaming. There was animations in front of the screen. Like if you look at it, you'd be like, there's no way this guy is going to be the biggest podcaster in the world. And so it starts from, again, sloppy beginnings. And so, you know, for me, it was, I got into this groove, which can be a good thing, but I wasn't seeing results. Like I saw that result from the Rich Roll episode, but then again, it plateaued. And I was seeing some growth, but not enough growth that I could make a full time living from it. And so it took me about another year to really start to experiment more uh, and really step outside the box of the podcast. And it was about a year to a year and a half after I initially started this whole thing. Uh, it was March two thousand and eighteen. I you know, saw people making videos about minimalist apartments. And I was like, on YouTube, and they had a lot of views. And I was like, put two and two together. I'm like, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that. Like, I'm a minimalist. I have an apartment and I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> what What I was so hesitant to do originally was to invest my time and energy. Uh, because a video like that, when, when I'm really, really trying hard, will take about a week. That's a lot of time when I'm writing the video, and then I'm planning out the shots, and then I'm shooting the video, and then I'm editing it. Even if it's a three-minute video, it just takes a lot of time. And when you don't have an audience, you're kind of hesitant to, to want to put in that time because... It's a big investment. Yeah, it's a huge investment. You put it up there, and then the most likely scenario is that nobody watches it. <laughs> and so obviously that that could be crushing if you really invest the time and energy into it. But it was a lesson once you know I got through that, that like, that's actually what you have to do. You have to put in that kind of hard work. And it's what I did with the podcast. I just didn't really think about it from the perspective of the YouTube channel. So I made a video called My Minimalist Apartment, and it was really cinematic. It uh, you know, was color graded nicely. I added some humor and personality into it. I really tried to finesse the editing the best I could. And then I uploaded it. And I think within a couple, like maybe a week, it got like 20,000 views, which was like more than any video I'd ever uploaded. And then it just kept going and going and going. And I remember uh, like our mutual friend, Jason Zook, he was like messaging me be like, dude, I've never seen anything like this. Like what the heck's going on? Like, oh, huge wake up call. I should edit. Like short, well thought out YouTube videos and like about minimalism, and then maybe later on about self development and about the things that I've learned. And that was really what shifted. It was that response that made me realize, oh, okay, this is where I need to focus my time and energy on, and not so much on the podcast.
0: The experimentation you're talking about here is like structural in the format of the show itself. And experimentation, I'm sure, has taken a ton of different forms for you, even down to like. The headlines and the style of the thumbnail. So if I'm pretty early on creating content, how should I think about experimentation and and how to approach that in a way that I can get real useful insights versus endlessly chasing the next shiny object?
1: I think it comes with self-awareness and it comes with being able to objectively look at your work and understanding like what's the best direction to head and like. You know, you you have to look at feedback. I think a lot of people are really resistant to look at feedback. They think that every comment is a troll, like every like and every negative piece of feedback is a troll, and it's not actual legitimate criticism. It's not easy. And like, like I know firsthand that you could look at a hundred good comments, positive comments, and then one negative comment, and that one negative one just sticks with you for like a week. It's just a deep sinking pain in your stomach. Being open-minded, being thoughtful about how you take in that feedback, and understanding that not all of it is on a level playing field—like what my mom thinks of my videos—like I, it's amazing that she loves my videos, but you know, it, it might not change my perspective in terms of what I'm gonna do. Uh, but if I see an overwhelming amount of people say like, "Oh man," like in, in Matt's podcast, like he really talks a lot in his videos, like he just needs to let his guests speak. Then I'll be like, okay, let me think about that. Is that true? Am I speaking too much? Am I talking about myself? Why am I talking about myself? And, like, in those instances, I'm like, well, like, a lot of times I'm trying to make this feel as conversational as possible. And by me opening up, they open up. And, but I also understand that might not come across that way to a listener. And so, like, being open minded, understanding, and then again, like, using the experimentation, tweaking, maybe trying a few episodes where, like, okay, I'm gonna try to be the best damn listener in the world (laughs) on this episode, you know, and, and, to your point, it goes along with creating thumbnails, titles, everything. Like seeing what other people are doing, see what's working for other people, and then doing what feels right for you. Because I think a lot of times it's not just about maximizing your reach. And you know, when I think about YouTube videos, there's so much that you could do to maximize your reach on a YouTube video uh, in terms of creating it more sensational, more edgy, more viral. like You could definitely tweak these things. But then you start to lose trust in your audience. And even if you do get more views in that video, I don't think it's worth it. And so there have been like instances where I've harped over a single word in a title for like days where I'm like, should I go, should I do that one? Should I do this one? And you kind of always do at least on YouTube. you you often come to this line where you're like, is this clickbait or not? I've had a couple videos that were I wouldn't say, Well, okay, questionable, because I certainly questioned them when I was making them, you know what I mean? But then I realized, I was like, okay, I think it's actually clever. Like One is like, this productivity system will save your life, was the name of the video. It sounds crazy sensational, but the video was about checklists and how airline pilots and doctors use them to save lives. (laughs) And so, Mm. again, at first glance, it looks sensational. And certainly, a lot of people think that it is, but I think that it actually returns on the message. It returns on the promise that I made in the title. And I think as long as you're fulfilling that promise, you can kind of play with the lines. But again, you have to live with it. You have to feel good about yourself. And if you keep doing it and you you keep pushing that line too far, you may not feel good about yourself and your audience may start to lose uh, trust in you.
0: After the break, Matt dives deeper into his video making process today, what he's learned about crafting a good story and how he protects himself from burnout. So stick around because we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible, too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C., Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super-duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to Creative Elements. When I think about creators like Matt who have literally millions of followers, it's hard for me to even fathom. In episode 10 of the show, Amy Landino talked about creating all of her videos for her made-up avatar, Charlotte. And since then, I've been thinking a lot about my audience and what I know or think I know about those of you listening. So I was curious how Matt thought about his own audience. At what point did you feel like you really had a handle on who your audience was? And when did that start to drive the type of content you were creating?
1: I don't think I do have a clear, Now I have like a, I have a pretty Ballad. good, I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, like, I think that's like certainly a, a big, big takeaway is that like, I still have tons and tons of doubt and I don't, uh, you know, I've talked about this with, with, uh, Jason Zook a lot where it's like, there is to me, at least in my own experience, there has been no feeling change from 15,000 subscribers the number that I thought was going to be like the end all be all to 300,000 to 3 million like it really like inside I don't feel like a different person at all I you know still put the same amount of energy and effort into my videos I think I just focus on making the best videos I possibly can I and I kind of internalize the feedback the response and I have to take that in like Everything else. Like, my wife is super supportive and, and she watches so many of my videos. And I'm often like asking her for advice, what she thinks. Did I go too far with this? Is this joke appropriate or not? Am I going to get in trouble for saying this? And then she'll give me her opinion. And then I, I take that in. And I'm like, okay, is that, should I do that? Or should I actually, you know, push it on this one or should I scale this back? And so I think like my understanding of my audience continues to evolve and change. But at the end of the day, it's like I have to continue to make the best videos that I can, trying to add the most value as possible. I think a big lesson for me was leaning into experimentation versus being an expert. And that was tough for me in the beginning because I think the misconception is that if you're talking about something on YouTube, you need to be an expert. And so I wanted to come from a place of like, hey guys, I'm just like you. Like I'm going through this stuff. I struggle with procrastination and habits and everything else and this is what I'm working on, this is what I'm learning about, or this is what I've learned in the past about this. And I think that perspective, one, it opened me up to a whole bunch of other content, and two, it allowed me to just like just be myself as opposed to pretending to be somebody I wasn't.
0: I want to return to this topic I had of doing really, really good work. You've mentioned a couple times just the amount of time that goes into even writing for some of these videos. I think a lot of people will look at mediums that aren't explicitly written mediums and think that there's not a ton of writing involved. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about when you decide you have enough reason to do a certain video Mm -hmm. uh, versus not, because I'm sure you have some multiple of ideas versus how many things you actually end up making a video about. So how do you know that there's enough thought and intention behind an idea before making an actual video about it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think first Is the idea something that interests me? Is it something that I could sit down and write about for a couple hours, and I would have plenty to say about it? And I think that's like the first thing: does it interest me? You know, I I don't know if I would say that I'm deeply, deeply passionate about procrastination or habits. I am deeply passionate about filmmaking and storytelling, and you know, telling those stories, and so. I think like it's combining my passion with my interests, and so finding things that I would be interested in talking about and exploring and learning more about. And I think that is like the the very baseline. I used to think that there was it was bad to think about the title before you made the video. I don't know why. I just think like maybe like it was an integrity thing. It's like well, I'm not gonna something isn't pure. Yeah, exactly. Like not pure art. But then but then especially as my audience started to grow, I was like, if I can't think of at least a somewhat compelling title almost like an elevator pitch like how could i tell this and this idea in one sentence in i forget how many characters like it's like 45 characters or whatever there's a 100 character limit before it starts to get cut off on youtube i like to keep most of my videos within about 45 characters in terms of the title and so that just kind of like keeps it on two lines it's like what is the substance what's the message that you're trying to get across why would somebody click on this video And so I think that becomes important when you're trying to serve an audience. And when also you're trying to create a sustainable, thriving community, you know, if you, if you didn't do a good job of that, then, you know, less and less people would show up to your videos, you'd be able to help less and less people. And so I do think about, does a topic interest me, then is there a compelling title there that I can work together? And I try to just find one to start and that's enough. And I'm like, okay, great. Like if all else fails, I go with that one. But then, usually, as the process of writing goes along, I might come up with new ideas for that title. Or what often happens is at the end, once I'm finished writing the video, I will workshop 10, 20 different titles. I will just, you know, on that same document where I'm writing out my video, I will try every single title and variation. Even if I know it sounds like shit, I'm like, okay, well, okay, what if I word it like that? What if I word it like that? What if I swap this word out? And just getting a vibe for what feels right. There's actually a great website called thumbsup.tv. Thumbsup.tv, you can just go there and it allows you to drag and drop your thumbnail and put your title in, and it shows you how it will show up on every YouTube UI. Mm -hmm. So from Apple TV to your desktop to the sidebar or the homepage on YouTube. And I found that to be pretty helpful when I'm stuck and when I'm like, I just want to see what this would look like. On YouTube's platform. Cause again, this is like the marketing side of things. I think there's the content and then there's the marketing. And I think you should put 80 to 90% of your time working on the content and making the best film you possibly can on YouTube specifically. And then 20% of your time working on the title, thumbnail, and all that stuff. Um, and like, that's really how, how you're going to improve your reach. What's the lead time
0: on a video for you? You know, you're talking about all these different steps. Are you working on this week's video, you know, right now, or right now you're working on a video that's going to release four weeks from now?
1: So that's changed over the the years. Like, I mean, I had, like, I've been in a spot before where I have five videos done. And that is a glorious feeling. Like, honestly, that's where I want to be right now in my life. Because it's just like the stress and the anxiety start to, like, decrease and you i i see like just like you want a financial runway when you're starting anything creative having you know the next 4 videos or 4 episodes done and in, in in the can helps to like Create without fear. Because there's always that fear that you're going to run out of an idea or the next video you make out is going to be terrible and people are going to stop watching it.
0: Or you burn yourself out doing four videos in a row and then just take four weeks off and you're right back in the same spot.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) Dude, I've totally done that. Where I've, you know, that happened last year where I, you know, we took, my wife and I took a long trip. We were going to a wedding and then spending time in Italy and RIP travel. (laughs) And there was like four or four weeks, I think that we took off. And so I had videos planned for all those four weeks and then I got back and then I didn't have any video planned for when I got back. And then it's just like, it's like all that, that break and the relief of being on break. It was kind of a little bit corrupted by the fact that I was anxious knowing when I got back, I would be like back in the same boat and starting over from scratch. I think this is like one of the endless battles of a creative and knowing when to just like allow yourself a break and to not put out a video this week uh, and take take a couple of weeks off to get back on your feet. Um, so yeah, ideal world, I would have a few weeks out, two to four weeks. Uh, I think in these times with the pandemic and everything going on, I realized that I actually wanted to create week to week. I actually pushed a couple of videos I was going to upload a little bit later because it didn't feel like the right time. And I was like, I actually need to respond to the moment of what's happening right now. And so creating week to week was actually helpful. In most cases, I think it's great to have Some runway there. I think from right now where I'm at is, uh, it's Wednesday and my video for next week, I have it written, but I haven't filmed it or uh, uh, edited it yet. So I'll I'll do that by the end of the week. And then I'll have my Tuesday video done. I'm actually, I'm working on a couple other big side projects that uh, including a feature film. So, you know, it's tough to juggle all these things. And so letting the runway go is one of the things that I had to do.
0: With such a large channel, there's super wide variance, video to video, of how one performs. So how do you look at the performance of your channel over a period of time to know if, like, how would you know if your quality was starting to slip or you were just starting to not hit the message that your audience has come to expect?
1: I think that that question hits on a fear that almost every YouTuber has. And it's something I've talked with many, many other YouTubers who have... Uh, just as large or larger audiences, I don't think that fear goes away completely. You always have this this kind of like in the back of your head, being like, "This could be it." Like, this, like this is we talk about it all the time. Like, this video could be the one where everything starts going downhill, and then all my my audience abandons me and leaves me. And that might be true. Like that <laughs> might happen. And I think preparing for worst case scenario isn't such a bad thing. I think that at the end of the day, like you'd have to do something really dumb to really lose your entire audience and for me it was again going back to that fifteen thousand number it was about being happy with what you already have and knowing that i mean like obviously for me like three million like i i don't need a fraction of that to actually do what i love to do which is make films every day and i always think about worst case scenario i'm like all right you know what if youtube exploded tomorrow and i lost everything i would just start making videos for freelance again because I love making films, and I'm sure maybe there's another influencer, somebody else that I can partner up with to make a film, and so that gives me comfort in and and lets me to relax when the numbers aren't consistent and when there's highs and lows. When you put out one video that has like half as many views as what you're used to seeing, and then one video goes viral, and it's like being able to deal with those swings, I think really important. And then just being able to also understand that, you know. Nothing lasts forever. And am I going to be 60 years old making YouTube videos about procrastination? Like, I don't know, maybe, but I imagine there's going to be many iterations and I'm going to continue to evolve and make new things and pursue new projects. And so just kind of having that self-awareness and understanding about what the future might bring certainly helps with the ups and downs.
0: Between directing Minimalism, more than 100 episodes of his podcast, The Ground Up Show, and the highly produced videos on his YouTube channel, I knew Matt has learned a thing or two about good storytelling. So I asked him what lessons he's learned for crafting a good story.
1: One big lesson comes back to freestyle versus writing. And I think that even people who, who are great freestyling off the top of their head, I think everybody can will be able to tell a better story if they take a step back, they plan it, they write out as much as they can. Now, your writing process might look different than mine. You may not write the entire thing all the way through, or you might uh, you know, just write bullet points about where you want it to go. Because I'm always thinking about, how do I make this story engaging and compelling and keeping people interested throughout? There was this amazing breakdown uh, somebody did of like the kind of how my videos are structured in terms of like A-roll, B-roll, when you see me on camera, when you don't see me on camera, what are the diff- different elements that I use to keep people engaged? Um, which was kind of like, a, you know, as much as like I live and breathe it every day, it was interesting to see somebody else break that down for me to take a step back and be like, oh, that's interesting that they they notice those things. But it's like, you won't see me on camera typically for more than 30 seconds, especially early on in the video um there's obviously exceptions to that rule but my pacing is is rather quick even though a lot of people will say like wow like your your videos are so calming and slow and but still that's because I think I don't do like wacky transitions and sound effects and like you know like a lot of times on YouTube there is a certain style that is pretty prevalent but I like to think about, okay, the opener, how do I make it really interesting and compelling? How do I hit on, again, I I know this is very YouTube-specific as well, uh, so hopefully people can translate it to other platforms. But how do I make it kind of follow through with the expectation or what they thought they were going to click on? They thought they were going to click on a certain kind of content. And so I want to like reassure them, hey, that is exactly what you clicked on. Like You're going to learn about this. The worst thing is clicking on something, again, this is where clickbait comes in, where it doesn't fulfill that promise. And so letting the viewer know early on, f- figuring out a creative way to hook them, and then thinking about pacing throughout knowing when to play a music track, when to let the music speak for itself and to dominate the you know, the film, when to let it just sit in the background and have it so you don't even notice it, when to cut it completely and live in silence. That's something I think a skill a lot of people don't really take advantage of, where they think they have to score every single second of their video. I think letting that moment of silence speak for itself can, can add some drama, some interest, and actually pull a viewer in in a way that uh, music can't do. And then I think, yeah, adding like sketches and humor, it's something that I love to do. And it's something that actually brings me a lot of joy in the videos that I make, where sometimes the most fun is like my wife and I shooting a sketch back and forth and just bantering and riffing and having fun. And then when I add that to the video, that comes through. And, and I think people uh, enjoy those little breaks in the momentum. And so not trying to take yourself too seriously. I think that it 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 takes a lot of time and energy and like, years and years to really develop as a storyteller, but you you find it oftentimes in the edit. So as much as I write and plan my videos, things change when I'm shooting it, especially like there's like impromptu moments and like times where I riff just because like, I think that might create like a natural funny element. Uh, there are certain things that can't be scripted, obviously. And then beyond that, it's just, you know realizing that once i get into the editing once i'm sitting down i realize oh that sounds corny oh my god like i can't believe i wrote that like why would i say that in a video and then i'm i'm changing it and i'm recording new voiceover because i think it fits better for the video and i'm restructuring it and i what i thought was going to be the opener actually ended up being in the middle of the video and then i changed what the opener was going to be or i had to reshoot some footage and so perfectionist tendencies in there <laughs> for sure but i think really it's about trying to 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 get it right and trying to to make the most interesting, compelling story out of what you have and also what you can create. So you kind of have to open yourself up to not being held to, this is the way I wrote it. This is the way I originally planned it. So that's the way it needs to be Uh, adapting and changing and, and kind of going with your gut. And I think honing that intuition is really what's going to help you tell great stories. One last question, and
0: you can make this as brief as you want. I really respect the very apparent boundaries and balance that you have with technology, despite being deeply ingrained in technology for like your life force, <laughs> you know, or like yeah. what you're sustaining income. What types of systems do you have in place now that you would recommend, even somebody getting started out who doesn't have nearly the amount of inbound, I'm sure you do, create enough balance and boundaries for themselves to maintain some creative space?
1: Yeah. I think boundaries is is really a key word there and I just did a video on this recently where I talked about just the three ways to add boundaries into your life and you could add boundaries into your day your weeks and on a monthly or bi-monthly basis for me rules have been just absolutely essential uh maybe it's the way I think but I know certainly a lot of other people resonate with with creating rule rules which really are boundaries to make sure that you don't Uh, do that thing that you know that you shouldn't. And we're all guilty of this. And as much as I try to set boundaries, I also break them. You might set rules like no screens in bed, no screens two hours before bed. I'm going to stop working at 6 p.m. every day. I'm going to set a certain time when I start working each day, especially now that most of us are working from home. I think those rules can be even more important because we're not coming home from the office or from the co-working space to come home. On a weekly basis, you know, it's respecting weekends. That's something that's, as a creative, as as people who are Super ambitious and fired up about what they're doing. We'll work weekends. Like we'll work like twenty weekends in a row, like as we rush towards a project. Ah, uh, we'll just do, we'll just finish up this one podcast here. Ah, uh, we'll just like write this newsletter in the morning or check this email Sunday night and then it turns into a seven day work week. I think taking your rest just as seriously as as a part of your productivity as anything else is super important. So respecting the weekends, like again, another rule I would have is no work Saturdays. and again that's giving me especially when like times are busy to to work the sunday here and there to do a little bit of writing on sunday but to make sure that we we take those days where we don't focus on anything at all and then i think on the monthly basis is this is something that i've really started to find much more value in over the past year or so but it's getting away from the house especially for me getting away from the city that i live in and just being out in nature which i'm so often deprived of and enjoying the quiet the solitude and just completely cutting off all screens all work everything and just doing nothing but you know reading books listening to uh, audiobooks obviously there's a screen screen there so i'm a little bit of a hypocrite but but, but for me it's like more about consuming Ah, uh, interesting content that has nothing to do with entrepreneurship, creativity. It has to do with, oh, let me like listen about history or let me read a, a fiction novel. And so those kinds of breaks uh, really allow me to recharge. And also, I think the biggest thing is it gives me perspective. It allows me to realize, uh, am I really focusing on the right things with my work? Am I happy with the amount of work that I'm currently doing? Am I doing this for the right reasons? I I find that those kind of breaks four or five days away from everything every month or two uh, have really, really helped and, and shifted my perspective.
0: This was such a fun episode to record and edit. Matt's work is such an inspiration to me, and it's easily some of the most well-produced video content on all of YouTube. I really love Matt's perspective that we heard at the very top of this episode. He knew that he had read and learned enough about how to start building his audience. It was just time for him to start putting it into practice. Too often we tell ourselves that we need to learn more or that we aren't ready, but in reality it's through trial and error, through experimentation, that we truly learn the most. Matt's focus on experimentation continues to this day. A quick look at his most popular videos will turn up titles like "I quit caffeine for 30 days," "I counted every calorie for 30 days," "I meditated one hour every day for 30 days," and "I took cold showers for 30 days." I've learned a lot from Matt in this episode, and I really hope that you did too. You can follow Matt on YouTube at youtube.com/mattdiavella or on Instagram at mattdiavella. Links to that will of course be in the show notes. Thanks to Matt for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Brian Skeel for mixing this show and also creating our music. If you like this episode, jump into our Facebook group by searching Creative Elements Listeners on Facebook. Let me know what you thought, or you can tweet at me at JKlaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll keep saying it week after week. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Pod A Sonic Universe.